Good day, everyone. My name is Andrew Milligan, and on behalf of the Society of Professional Economists, I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest in this series of video interviews where we can discuss some of the key issues of the day with senior economists from around the world. Now, for anyone who's been watching this series of videos, you'll know that we try to cover a wide range of issues and situations. Most of the time we've been talking about individual countries and uh, individual markets, US, UK, uh, Europe and such like. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by an international economist who's got considerable experience in the complex world of emerging markets, both large and small. May I welcome John Anderson. John. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's uh, very good to be here and uh, looking forward to chatting. Thank you. Well, let me tell you a little about John. Um, he was the Global Emerging Market Economist at UBS Investment Bank, uh, where he worked for nearly a decade. Uh, he's also worked at Goldman Sachs and also, interestingly, the International Monetary Fund, uh, where he served as the resident representative in both China and Russia. Uh, so, he, of course, he speaks fluent Russian and Mandarin Chinese. Uh, more recently, he's a partner in the Emerging Advisors Group, uh, which provides consulting services on all the major economies and markets. Uh, he received his MA and PhD in economics at Harvard University. Um, and uh, John, you're, you're currently in Shanghai at present, aren't you? So in that sense, uh, an expert on the ground in China. <laughs> yes, locked, locked down in Shanghai, I might add. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, turn, we'll, turn to, now. we'll turn to China in a moment. Um, but I thought we might just start our conversation on perhaps just a more general note. Um, Obviously, you're an emerging market expert, so an easy question to start with. Why do you think emerging markets are such an interesting area for economists to consider? And what do you think is perhaps often missed from the mainstream discussion about the economic structures of emerging market economies? I, oh, there are so many things to say in response to that question. Uh, uh, for starters, uh, the sheer diversity of emerging markets, right? I mean, you, you know, when you talk about the emerging universe, you run the gamut from OECD nations, right, uh, the likes of Korea and Israel, right, who are traded as emerging markets in some asset classes. Uh, you then have China, obviously the world's largest, most dynamically, uh, you know, growing and uh, developing uh, market, uh, one that could well take over as the world's largest economy. And then, of course, you throw in uh, Latin America, you throw in Africa, you have some of the world's poorest countries and everything in between, right? You have a combination of uh, very manufacturing oriented, um, you know, players who are part of the global supply chain. Then you have, uh, you know, distant commodity exporters who are just beginning to, uh, you know, join the, uh, the ranks of uh, developing nations. And so, again, it's a, it's a very, very interesting place to be. Uh, for the, the sheer uh, volume of, of, uh, of diverse options that are on the table. Now, whenever I've tried to examine emerging markets, one of the problems I've found is simply the lack of data, the paucity of data in many of these countries, which from an economic point of view can, can be quite, 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 a, quite an issue. Indeed. Uh, and again, as you might imagine, you start with higher income parts of the developing spectrum, very good data sources. Uh, most of Asia, for example, would provide, uh, you know, up to the minute uh, monthly daily figures, you have good market data, and then you can easily drop off a cliff. If you go to parts of the, uh, the, the poorer income frontier, it's very difficult to get any sense of what's going on. And so that makes it also a very interesting challenge to be in, uh, in this part of the, uh, the global economy. Well, we're going to concentrate our discussion on, on three particular countries, uh, uh, Russia, China, India. 
Um, now, clearly, uh, at the time of uh, uh, the presentation of, the, of this video, the, the war between Russia and the Ukraine is continuing, and, and we're not going to talk about that because it, developments are just far too fast moving. Um, nevertheless, I thought we could probably stand back and talk about some of the issues there. Uh, and the first is I'd, I'd welcome your thoughts on, on the sanctions and Russia's ability to withstand the major series of sanctions which the USA Europe, other G20 countries are implementing. Um, how much or how little do you think these sanctions might affect uh, Putin's government or or where do you see uh, sanctions uh, developing over, over the, the next couple of months? Yeah, no, excellent question. I think three things to highlight here. Number one is that we have clearly moved from what I would have considered very mild sanctions at the outset, right, on the eve of the invasion. Uh, Things like, uh, again, um, blocking off uh, certain individuals from travel, uh, sanctioning certain banks, uh, targeting parts of Russia's export economy. We've moved beyond that now. We've gone into what I would consider to be serious sanctions, although not, uh, you know, not um, massively destructive. Serious sanctions means we are now ta targeting uh, large swathes of the banking system. We are threatening. Uh, the financial system as a whole cut off from uh, SWIFT international uh, payment systems. We have basically sanctioned all but uh, Russian gas exports to the West. So, uh, and in addition, we've, uh, the West has also uh, widened out the list of individuals and firms that are, uh, you know, um, subject now to asset blockage and withdrawal. So the, the, we've moved into a, a, a list of, of measures that is going to have a serious impact on Russia's economy. That's absolutely uh, the case. However, and it's, it's important to stress that in the same light, and this is the second point I want to make, Russia is not Iran, right? If you benchmark sanctions, one of the hardest examples of sanctions that we've seen over the last decade has of course been Iran, right, which was completely blocked from oil exports, where financial institutions were completely blocked from dealings with any of global neighbors. There was a broad UN-based consen consensus against uh, Iran. Iran's economy was devastated, right, as it lost 90 or 95 percent of its export base, right? The currency collapsed. Uh, you got uh, mega inflation coming through the system and imposed significant hardship on uh, the Iranian population. Russia will not be that, right? Uh, China alone is a quarter of, of, of trade with Russia, and China has made it very clear that it is going to continue to trade on a normal basis with Russia and may indeed uh, allow Russia to incre increase exports to China to help offset the impact of uh, sanctions coming from elsewhere. Another 10-15% of Russia's trade is with friendly neighbors in the uh, former Soviet Union region. So even in the worst case here, we're talking about perhaps half of Russia's trade, maybe 60% of Russia's trade that will be affected. That's a serious blow, but it doesn't spell a death knell for the economy, right? The currency has depreciated significantly, but by, is nowhere near the kind of market disruption that we saw in the case of Iran, or for example, Venezuela or others, which found themselves in similar situations, right? So Russia Inc. Uh, will suffer pain, but will also continue to go on, right? Uh, obviously, the longer the war draws out, and there are scenarios in which case NATO gets directly involved and we move to a broader conflict and things could get much worse very quickly. But as we see things playing out now and in the next coming weeks, um, uh, we are uh, serious, but not devastated, I would say, for, for Russia's economy. 
And this uh, brings up the third quick point I would like to make. If you think back to even the most devastating models that we've seen, Iran, Venezuela, right? Others where economies have collapsed and uh, you know, again, significant pain that's been suffered by the population. Nonetheless, uh, there are very few cases of successful regime change, right? I mean, hardliners continue to rule the roost in Iran. We're recently elected uh, once again. Um, Maduro is still uh, running Venezuela five years after the abject collapse uh, of the economy and you know, careening into hyperinflation. And they're still there, right? Uh, and I suspect that hopes that this... Uh, hardship in, in Russia's case and sanctions in Russia's case, hopes that this will lead to uh, regime change, lead to uh, Mr. Putin being forced out of power. Uh, it could happen, but I think very unlikely given the track record that we've seen elsewhere in the emerging universe. That's the sad fact is that, uh, you know, it, it, things will go on as before. So Russia looks likely to suffer a severe recession, but nevertheless, how do the external circumstances uh, surrounding the economy look at present. I mean, clearly it, 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 it is unable to use all of its foreign exchange reserves. Um, how does it look in terms of external debt and, and uh, sort of the balance of payments pressures which a, a country might face? Well, and this is another issue with Russia, right? Which is that uh, it's been a very well-behaved country over the last 10, 12 years in terms of its uh, external balance. Uh, in terms of macro policies, it's had a very conservative fiscal policy. It's uh, run consistent surpluses on the external account. Uh, as a result, you're, in a, you're starting from a very good place, right? You don't have high external debts. You don't have high public debt. The banking system in Russia is not a significant external borrower. And in that sense as well, uh, the initial round of sanctions is not going to force Russia into, um, you know, again, abject collapse domestically because it can't fund uh, as it normally would abroad, right? That's not actually the case in Russia today. Again, it will lose a significant amount of its uh, normal export earnings, one suspects on the order of 50 to 60%. That's a hard blow. Although even there, a blow that may well be uh, softened by the continued rise of oil and commodity prices, right? This is a, you know, one more uh, compounding factor that may actually work in Russia's favor. The less oil that Russia is able to shift, the higher uh, oil prices go and the more it earns on the rest, right? Uh, and again, if it is successful in reorienting some of that to China and friendlier neighbors elsewhere, uh, again, we may not be talking about the same kind of balance of payments uh, impact that we, we would have seen otherwise. Well, uh, some complex issues there, certainly. Um, let's move to the, the, the second country, China. And you, you mentioned already that it's well on its way to becoming uh, uh, the, the second, perhaps first largest economy in the world uh, over the next decade or two. Um, it, of course, China faces many short-term issues. Um, there's worries about property development, um, uh, say to the housing market, Evergrande uh, and debt issues such as that. And then it's got some longer term issues of which demographics and environmental concerns would be too. Uh, and yet, you know, President Xi is well on his path to, to creating a, a high-tech economy um, uh, over the next decade or so. How do you balance all of these positives and negatives uh, facing uh, President Xi's government at present? Uh, yes, indeed. And now as we come into the 20th Party Congress, actually, and uh, one that will likely enshrine uh, another term or two for Mr. Xi, the question of what China will be facing in the next decade becomes very, uh, uh, very consequential. Um, 
the good news and the bad news here. I'll start with the bad news as I see it for China, which is that uh, you know China's extraordinarily successful growth economy is you know one of the miracles of the last century, right? In terms of bringing itself out of poverty, rapidly developing such a competitive market economy. Um, but the bad news here would be that uh, the growth days for China, the salad days, if you will, are are, are really well and truly over, right? Um, Headline GDP statistics are still fairly flattering, right? They still seem to be maintaining headline real growth on the order of five, six, seven percent. Uh, but if you look at the underlying data, and most economists in China, myself included, are always forced to try and um, second guess the numbers and create our own proxies for what's happening in the economy. We spend a lot of time and effort with hundreds of data points trying to put together our own index of underlying activity in China. And what that index is telling us is that China came into the 2010s still growing very rapidly indeed, right? 10% blistering, 10% pace or above. But by the middle of the decade, it already fallen to a growth rate of something on the order of three to 4%, right? And was uh, struggling into the pandemic in 2018, 2019, before uh, COVID hit, uh, already growing at a pace of 3% or below, right? I mean, this was already an economy that was much, much slower and much more sluggish than the official data were showing us. And now as we come out, we're finding that China coming into 2022 uh, is growing at a very similar pace, right? It's positive rather than negative, but it's really not uh, showing us that mid or high single digit, uh, you know, real growth that, that the, uh, the leadership continues to use as official targets. Um, and if you, if you think about the underlying reasons why, I mean, it's, it's fairly clear from the data, right? The property sector, which was a massive driver of Chinese growth at home, basically uh, flattened out five, six years ago, right? The property sector has not been growing much uh, in, in uh, the last half decade, actually. The you know, construction activity uh, sales have you know, reached a peak and have uh, started to fade. Uh, if you think about exports, uh, China's done very well in the pandemic, grabbed uh, market share through the turmoil that happened in the rest of the world. But the, the underlying story for Chinese export competitiveness as well is that uh, 10 years ago really marked the high watermark for China. As uh, wages started to grow, as, as uh, China became very expensive in uh, low-end areas, started to move its uh, uh, labor-intensive export capacity off to Vietnam and Cambodia and Bangladesh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the combination of a much slower export economy, a much slower property and investment economy has meant that China has slowed a lot. And if you look in the wings, there's not much now waiting uh, for China, right? Uh, the inevitable conclusion that we find for the next decade is that China will probably be closer to something like a 3% growth story than a 7% growth story, uh, still expanding. And that's the good news, if you will, for China. Uh, and with surprisingly few uh, crisis stresses, right? Uh, there, there are a lot of market worries about the health of the housing markets, uh, the health of the banking system, et cetera. But the dirty little secret here is that those are actually very well managed in China. There are, of course, developers who are uh, falling apart as we speak after five years of very little growth and having grown their balance sheets. Um, uh, we're in the middle of a big bank restructuring with uh, you know, uh, small and medium institutions having amassed high bad debts and uh, overstretched on balance sheets. But uh, 
again, when you put all of this together, um, China Inc. is a very closed economy, uh, very uh, independent from uh, financing from the rest of the world. Uh, fiscal resources are still available for the country at home, and they're um, managing very well to uh, try to make their way through to this lower growth environment. So again, to summarize just very quickly the headline points, right? The, the bad news is that China is is, is moving into a post-growth environment, which has very different implications now for uh, household income growth, for wages, uh, for job creation, all of which will be you know, a bit of a struggle over the next decade. Uh, but at the same time, um, has made it through the past 30 years without leading to something that, you know, with not, not having things fall apart, right? There isn't a collapse or massive financial crisis waiting in the wings. And that's very good news for Mr. Xi as he tries to manage the next five years of growth going forward. Well, that, that, that sounds like a litany of bad news. You, you've got to lift our spirits, please, by suggesting <laughs> so there is some good news or, or some um, uh, upside risks as well as the downside, which you've mentioned. <laughs> well, I, I mean, one of the things to mention, which I always mention for my own investors as well, of course, is that uh, China, which is now a 16, $17 trillion economy growing at 3%, is actually adding more in terms of annual dollar activity than it was as a $5 trillion, uh, $5 trillion economy growing at 10, 14%, right? Uh, the base is very high. And if you're still growing in a, a, a low but still positive and comfortable pace, uh, there's plenty of things to do in China, right? For investors, for you know those who want to come and do business. Uh, again, this is a growing market, uh, and you're adding uh, you know a trillion dollars a year in terms of uh, new GDP, new activity. That's nothing to sneeze at, right? Uh, it's just uh, again in terms of sheer growth numbers. Uh, again, much lower than it would have been in the past. And to put those numbers into context, that would mean, you know, every two to three years, an economy the size of the UK, Germany, is being created afresh, so to speak. So it's, uh, you know, significant figures uh, when, when absolutely added up over <laughs> a few years. Um, now, uh, you, you mentioned, of course, that, you know, China, in effect, is a big continental economy and, and actually uh, exports and such like uh, are not that important for it. But just going back to Russia um, and you know, all of the talk that's been going on about deglobalization uh, at present and uh, the obviously trade and security technology tensions between America and China. Um, so there are some stories uh, out there amongst the emerging market economists, of course, that we are you know, actually quite well along the way towards a, 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 a bifocal, a, a divergent regime, a, a US regime, a Chinese regime in terms of uh, trade regulation and such like. Uh, do you see, how do you see the deglobalization de between uh, China and the rest of the world taking place over the next couple of years? There are certainly some elements of that, right? I mean, if you look at the high-tech space, for example, both China and the West have been uh, very uh, aggressive at uh, ring-fencing their national champions, uh, trying to weed out the influence of the rest of the world, or in China's case, the rest of the world, and in the US case, uh, uh, you know, ring-fence themselves from Chinese technology. Uh, so at the very top, you do see this uh, bifurcation there's a bit of an iron curtain that's fallen here, and you can see that going forward, this may well work itself down into other parts of the economy, right? Uh, at the same time, it's very important to keep in mind that if you measure 
sheer uh, globalization in terms of market share, in terms of trade relative to GDP, the irony is that uh, Chinese market share today in the US economy and the global economy is higher than when it entered the COVID pandemic two years ago, right? Uh, in fact, when the US and when Western Europe uh, went into lockdown, much of that capacity or, or much, much of the, uh, the, the, the impact of shutdowns and industrial uh, shortages and stoppages in the developed world meant that Chinese factories were suddenly awash with orders, right? Uh, this has been a boom two years for, um, for Chinese manufacturing. And it comes out now in 2022 uh, with a higher share of uh, low-end manufacturing, a higher share of electronics manufacturing relative to the global total than it had three, four years ago, right? So the supply chain is still very much alive and well. Uh, in the near term, uh, despite all of the rhetoric, what the world has discovered is that it's very dependent and increasingly dependent on Chinese goods. Uh, and uh, China's near neighbors, Vietnam, Cambodia, even Thailand, Malaysia, are still uh, rapidly growing and developing into the supply chain, right? And so, you know, the Asia, there has been no reshoring, if you will, the, you know, the, the, the Asian trade routes in Europe, if you look at the, you know, moving away a bit from China, but if you look at the rapid movement of capacity out of uh, core Europe into the European periphery, that has continued on a pace and is even doubling down now in some cases as we speak. So there, we still have this rapid, development of the global supply chain. It has not ironically, despite all of the rhetoric, impacted uh, the fundamental nuts and bolts of that uh, global internationalization as much as you might think. Well, let's move on to the third of the big countries, which is India, um, uh, which uh, yes. of, of course uh, is, is a you know, rapidly growing uh, large economy in its, in its own right. Um, would it be fair to say that India promises much but delivers less, delivers little? Um, it, it clearly has a young educated population, uh, high uh, tech skills and such like, uh, and comparative advantage in, in, in quite a few areas. But you could be argued that internal politics hold it back or, or, or perhaps again, it, it's sufficiently large that it's, it's a country uh, economy as, as well and, and doesn't need to uh, uh, rely so much on the rest of the world. How, how do you see India? developing over the next decade or so? Also a super interesting question and perhaps the most hotly debated question among emerging market economists, right? I mean, you, you have uh, the gamut from, you know, rabid India boosters to very jaundiced, uh, you know, uh, naysayers on, on the Indian economy. The truth I think is very much in the middle, but I tend to fall uh, a bit on the side of those who are disappointed with the Indian economy, right? Uh, India was, uh, did extraordinarily well through the 2000s, right? It developed very rapidly. It built out its export base. It really did a good job on plumbing uh, things like IT uh, services, uh, pharmaceuticals, medical technology. I mean, all of that part of the educated workforce using its technology skills, uh, that was really a wonderful boom decade for India. Trouble is in the last 10 years, India has run up against um, ceilings, if you will, right? Uh, and as just as you mentioned, I mean, India very much fashions itself a country full of young, uh, very well-educated, tech-savvy college graduates, right? But the reality is there's a share of the Indian population, that's a tiny fraction, right? Uh, 
And over the last decade, India has run up against very uh, continued shortages in, in the areas that it really would like to develop, right? Which are, the, again, the um, everything from engineering to medical technology to uh, you know, the tech services space. Um, it's now proving very difficult to continue to grow very rapidly given the, uh, you know, just the, the small base in terms of numbers of college graduates and postgraduates that come out of the Indian system. Uh, perhaps uh, by contrast, the biggest disappointment in India is uh, that India has not done much to provide employment for the hundreds of millions of excess semi-educated rural workers, right, who continue to languish in the countryside and count themselves in the ranks of the underemployed, right? If you look at the way it was done in East Asia, that was done, of course, through mega mass employment in light manufacturing sweatshops, right? I mean, start at the very bottom, the, you know, t-shirts and running shoes and tennis rackets and dolls and toys. And you, you know, you start there and you move up. Um, the dirty, dirty little secret in India, unfortunately, is that uh, the impediments to that kind of employment and that kind of investment are very, very strong. India is not interested in um, easing the way for you know, factories with 10,000 workers sitting at benches sewing t-shirts, for example. India sees itself as uh, above that and beyond it. And that's uh, unfortunate, right, in the sense that, again, the most... Um, you know, glaringly uh, underserved part of the population is precisely rural workers who would gladly stream into factory belts and, uh, you know, start making money that would provide a much needed source of additional foreign exchange for India. Uh, China has for a decade been giving up capacity in precisely those areas, so India would be a natural recipient. Um, but if you look at India's um, made in India strategy, right, in terms of the sectors and the areas that it wants to focus on, that those areas are glaringly absent. And, uh, and that's a, a, a bit of a problem for India because it, it, it now has reached a bottleneck, right? It, it very much wants to press on in, in these areas where it does have strong advantages in terms of its uh, globalized workforce, its educated workforce. But uh, that's, uh, again, um, proving more difficult as you run up against those shortages and constraints. Another problem for India is that, as you mentioned, internal politics and internal polity and internal um, uh, restrictions and impediments to investment are also a, a problem, right? India is a, uh, a thriving democracy, um, but also a messy one, right? In terms of uh, the competition between states, the localization of much of the uh, policymaking base. And uh, it makes it very difficult to compete in India as a national economy, right? It's difficult to take investments that, you know, can target uh, a, a market or an audience of 1.4 billion people, right? Instead, you tend to be much more localized because of borders and impediments to trade and, you know, the, the lack of uh, unification of tax regimes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Things that China and much of Asia sorted out uh, early on in their uh, uh, development period, India still uh, struggles, right, to, to, to achieve that kind of rapid growth in an environment where democracy, you know, is uh, good for some things, but perhaps uh, less, uh, makes it more difficult to do sweeping changes uh, in the economy. China had a much easier time doing many things as an autocratic uh, one-party state, for example. So 
you know, there, it's an interesting conversation in India, but there are, uh, you know, clearly things that are not being done right now. And, uh, uh, and, and in areas that I don't see being addressed very uh, uh, consciously or, or aggressively. In India. And as a result, India is doing all right, but will likely continue to muddle through over the next 10 years as it uh, tries to find its way. Muddle, muddle through. Well, uh, I think that's a prospect for many countries at, at present in, Indeed. in the world. <laughs> um, but let's move away from <clears throat> individual countries towards the emerging market complex as a whole. And, and, and I realise that is difficult to, to talk about because it is very diverse. But, but nevertheless, uh, we are seeing a significant tightening of American monetary policy um, over recent months and, and like to be in place for several years. A lot of emerging market countries are obviously linked uh, through the dollar or their dollar debts um, uh, to, to American policy. Um, how do you see them coping generally with, with this tightening uh, being seen by the Federal Reserve and indeed by other central banks around the world as well? Um, some organizations such as the International Monetary Fund are relatively sanguine. Uh, would you join them or, or, or are you a little more concerned? We are watchful, I guess, would be the best way to, to phrase it, right? Uh, there are some clear headwinds and uh, a couple of uh, tailwinds that also accompany the emerging outlook. On the headwind side, as you mentioned, right, uh, the, the Fed is, is hiking. Um, and that uh, is, impacts uh, EM almost immediately and directly in two senses. Number one, it makes the dollar more attractive relative to other assets. Uh, usually the combination of that factor plus the, the inevitable kind of risk off and uh, you know, reduction in sentiment that accompanies rising interest rates are both negatives for emerging market uh, growth and emerging assets, right? Uh, so it's certainly something for market investors to be conscious of when you look at the impact on uh, you know, uh, investing in the emerging universe. That's uh, definitely one issue. The other is that, uh, it, may, it provides or it puts a big question mark over the fate of the U.S. economy in particular, right? I mean, here's, an, here's a place that, that blew the doors off over the last two years, right? Massive expansion of central bank balance sheet, massive expansion of, of uh, government balance sheets, right? The fiscal deficits, enormous. Uh, and, you know, as you try to work your way through now retrenching and exiting from that double... Uh, over-expansionary period, uh, it certainly raises the question of U.S. recession, right? Uh, I'm not a U.S. economist, so I'm not going to jump into that debate. But uh, if and when the U.S. Uh, topples over in terms of demand and actually you know, enters a, a, a contractionary cycle, that obviously has uh, direct and big implications for commodity prices, for uh, exports, uh, and again, is a, is a big factor that will have an impact on emerging markets who are heavily dependent both on global trade, global commodity prices on the whole. Um, so that's, uh, those are the tail, the headwinds, if you will, that, that come in. On the tailwind side, I would uh, highlight one factor in particular, which is uh, unlike say the aftermath of the 2008, 2009 global crisis, right? If you remember 12, 13 years ago, um, you know, the world fell apart, uh, the Fed dropped interest rates to zero, everybody dropped interest rates to zero, the world recovered uh, fairly quickly. And over the next few years, money rushed into emerging markets like there was no tomorrow, right? If you look at positioning and asset markets, if you look at overall capital flows from the, um, the macro uh, balance of payments data, there was a madcap rush of money going into EM. This lasted till around 2012, 2013, 
At which point uh, the Fed started to hike rates. Uh, people got very cautious and worried and money went out the other way. And this was actually a big, big problem for emerging markets. Many of the commodity exporting countries, especially when oil prices fell in 2014, uh, toppled, right? You had uh, currencies giving way rapidly. You had many countries going into debt crisis. This was the beginning of the end, for example, for Iran and Venezuela, for much of the frontier world. You've had a number of crises over the last six or seven years. The IMF has been suddenly very busy. And this is all part and parcel of that unwind of global capital and global money that you had uh, a decade ago. Uh, now here we are again, we had a big crisis over the last two years, interest rates back to zero, everybody expanding balance sheets. But if you look at emerging uh, balance payments data, if you look at market data, there has not been a mad rush into uh, emerging markets. Money has really did not flow over the last two years. Markets went up, commodity prices went up, there was a repricing but there wasn't an actual physical flow of funds that went rushing into the emerging universe. Actually, things were very quiet uh, from most of the macro data we see. As a result, yes, you know, you're facing these headwinds again, and yes, you're going to be raising interest rates, and that's uh, you know, likely to be playing with global sentiment, et cetera, but you don't have that you know, over-positioning and over-dependence uh, on foreign funds now that in EM that you know, is set to move the other way and send everyone else into a tailspin again. There are countries that do face some of those elements, uh, but for the emerging world as a whole, it's, uh, we expect things to be much more gradual and quiet, right, on, on, on that particular front. So uh, things will likely be slower in two years time for the emerging world than they are today. Uh, that's our, you know, one of the, 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 the realities that we have to face as the, the developed world unwinds itself from uh, the overstimulus that was taken in the past, but um, again, orderly rather than disorderly is the watchword. Quiet and orderly are not words that uh, I've commonly heard <coughs> used in the context of emerging <laughs> markets, but uh, delighted, <coughs> delighted. Well, to hear. one can only hope, Andrew. One can only hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, time almost to end, but I just thought I'd, I'd leave you with one last question, which is, you know, forward-looking. Um, uh, what areas uh, are you thinking of trying to research in the next couple of months? Which countries, apart from the ones that we've talked about, uh, would you love to spend a little more time on uh, if you had more time, which uh, an economist never has, of course. Uh, so, Well, indeed. So your... I'm a market economist, right? Uh, and uh, my uh, client base are uh, debt and equity investors who trade very actively in, in the emerging space. Um, so, you know, I live in China and China is obviously a large country and there's a lot to talk about here, but it's not the most active country in terms of uh, tactical positioning and, you know, things move slowly in China, uh, at least in most areas, and the macro moves very slowly. If you look at the list of countries that are, you know, sort of blinking bright, bright red with, you know, three, four alarms going off, these tend to be places like uh, Argentina, like Turkey, uh, South Africa, um, Lebanon. Uh, you have you know, a host of players uh, now negotiating IMF programs. Uh, debt markets have blown out again. Oil move, prices are moving very quickly. So you know, Nigeria, for example, Colombia. Uh, these are much smaller markets and tend to be more on the periphery of the action in terms of uh, you know, growth and economic development. 
But boy, are they interesting for investors, right? Especially those who you know, put money in, into dollar debt, et cetera. And so at the moment, I mean, that's really where the nexus of action tends to be. And uh, uh, for our clients, at least, we'll be spending a good bit of time talking about those, those, those interesting places. Well, we'll have to try to set up a second session, John, uh, where we will be talking a little more about Argentina and Turkey and South Africa, um, all of which are just as interesting, <laughs> with, as you say, in their own pleasure, Andrew. As, as the big countries that we've talked about today. But thank you very much for taking part in this interview. It's, it's been fascinating to hear your thoughts about some of the issues facing the emerging market as a world, and uh, particularly uh, Russia, China, and India, uh, and uh, the particular problems that they face over the next few years. Um, uh, thank you very much, John, for joining us. Thank you very much to all the members of the Society for, for dialing in. Uh, we've got more videos, uh, events in, in person and on screen planned for the next few months. So, so please do dial in and, and look at the, uh, uh, the SPE's website every so often. But uh, final uh, word of thanks. Thank you very much indeed, John, for joining us today. Uh, great pleasure. Thanks once again for the invitation.